welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Okay, hello and welcome everyone to the November 2023 Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Education Research Journal Club. The PCRF promotes research literacy to advance the science of EMS educational research. Here with the PCRF Journal Club, we take a closer look at some of the latest research happening in medical education. A great big thank you to Limmer Education for sponsoring these podcasts so we can bring you the best of science in medical education. I'm Megan Corey, and I am here right now with Dr. Bill Toon and Michael Caduce. Joining us will be Alex Tremblay and Katie O'Connor and possibly David Page. Today, we're going to be discussing this article entitled Interrater Agreement Between Student and Teacher Assessments of Endotracheal Intubation Skills in a Self-Directed Simulation Learning Environment. And this was published in the Open Access Journal, BMC Medical Education, just this year, 2023. So you can pull this article very easily from the internet, and I would encourage you to do so. Um, also, I'm going to point to a, one that, le that uh, led me to this one and, and one we've discussed before that is by these same researchers. So thank you all for joining us today. We want to remind you that you can use the chat feature on, on your screen. You can type in comments. You can just have a discussion or, um, you know, in the chat. And uh, one of our panelists will be watching that and uh, maybe joining into the chat with you. And if you have a question or uh, something that you'd like to bring into the discussion or question for the panelists, just put that in the Q&A area and we can bring those into the conversation as we go also. And remember that if you miss any of these journal clubs or you have to leave in the middle, um, you can always replay past episodes from our very own YouTube channel. So you can go to youtube.com slash at PCRF at UCLA and you can subscribe and that way you can follow us and, and go back and listen. And I'm definitely going to point to one today that you can go back to that you can find on our YouTube channel because it is by the same authors uh, that uh, created this, this hybrid lab that we're going to be talking about. So uh, thanks again for joining us. And uh, I see Alex has now joined us. So we've got um, in March of 2022, we looked at a study that was about a novel algorithm. And actually, I think I have this on here, uh, the name of the study over here in the in the corner. It's an open access um, article as well, a novel algorithm-driven hybrid simulation learning method to improve acquisition of endotracheal intubation skills. And that was a randomized controlled study. We uh, discussed that study at length, and we recorded that in our, a previous one. If you look up March 2022 PCRF, um, I would highly recommend going to that and, and pulling that article. Uh, the educators out there, just it's kind of a mind-blowing article. What they did in that previous study, and it kind of leads to what we're going to talk about today, is they compared traditional endotracheal intubation skills training which we know as, you know, your traditional lecture, a demonstration, um, instructor-guided practice versus a self-regulated, time-flexible, well, not really time-flexible, but flexible team model of hybrid simulation. And it's important to understand that it's actually it's a learning method, not a technology. And that's important reminder when you look at this screen here, because what I've got here is a printout or a, a picture of the hybrid lab, which is a trademarked, you know, um, lab, the hybrid simulation lab. And you can see that what it has is an integration of video and audio, e-learning um, and simulation. So uh, there are multiple cameras in the room uh, for video recording, also for the possibility of live feedback via 
a monitor uh, by an instructor or recording and then feedback later. There's electronic door access so that teams can organize themselves and schedule and arrange for a time to go into the lab. Um, when they compare, when they did the comparison of the two groups, the traditional model versus this model, the times were held constant. So the traditional model uh, and the uh, hybrid lab uh, teaching method were both at three hours. So it wasn't like the, the amount of time spent training was different. But what they found and what they did actually that was, that was really amazing was they uh, compared the performance outcomes of those two forms of the students who went underwent the two forms of teaching, the traditional model versus the hybrid, hybrid lab. And the hybrid lab is much more detailed than what I'm, as you can tell, than, than how I'm explaining, because they do have like integrated um, e-learning modules that are, that are going on too. And that happened before they go to the physical lab. But what they did was they compared the outcomes of the two groups and the outcomes were judged by anesthesiologists who were blinded to which group the students belong to. And they were judged on real patients when they uh, intubated them during their rotations. So it was one of those studies where we were like, they did almost everything right. I mean, the numbers weren't huge, but they were large enough. You know, they had uh, over 30 in each group. And there were huge differences in the learning outcomes in favor of the hybrid lab methodology. Uh, and remember, it's a methodology, not a technology. Just like we always say, simulation is a technique, not a technology. It's the same thing goes for here. It's a teaching methodology. So now as a follow-up, uh, this group wanted to look at the inter-rater reliability of using um, students to assess at the outcome or assess the um, performance of the of the, their peers versus the teacher uh, assessing the performance of the peers. So what you can see here is their their objective basically or their hypothesis was that endotracheal intubation skills taught using this hybrid lab methodology. So now we're just looking at the hybrid lab methodology. Um, will be assessed similarly by students and teachers. So they already kind of sold us on the potential for using hybrid lab methodology um, as compared to the traditional lab. And they certainly, you know, sold themselves on it uh, because now what they're looking at is, is can they, can students and teachers assess outcomes um, the same use with good inter-rater reliability? So Michael Caduce is joining us uh, for a bit. He's got, uh, presentation coming up. So he's going to have to leave us, but I wanted to bring you in. We were just talking about this type of, of methodology. Megan, I, I couldn't, I think this is a great question. I'm so glad that this, you, you picked this article to follow up on because as an initial education um, instructor, I want to make sure that the students that are doing evaluations are accurate. It's easy for us to think that our students will just pencil whip right through the, the skill sheet and be like, yep, this person is competent and efficient and can do the skill. Um, and then when they get an instructor eval, we're sort of puzzled when we're like, why are they not where we think they are? Um, so I think this is a great way to test their methodology, but also to test some of the educational practices. And I think, again, explaining methodology is important. And that we know tracking skills is important. That's been well validated and well documented. Having a portfolio for your students' competencies, whether it's EMT or paramedic, is a great way of ensuring students have met the benchmarks. Now we're saying, okay, let's take it one step further and see if the hybrid, this really unique lab setting that they have or a online lab setting that they have works the way we think it does. So uh, I just think this is a great question. Um, are, my, are my students evaluating the same as my instructors? Yeah. And we talk about this too, right? Peer-to-peer -peer evaluation. Uh, I remember when the, what was it, this integrated out-of-hospital scenario was first being piloted. And we talked about team membership and team leadership. And then we started talking more about peer evaluations versus instructor evaluations. And and even the authors mentioned that in, in their uh, discussion about how there's a ongoing controversy about whether or not peer evaluations are valid and reliable and whether they're useful for learning um, in the long run. So they recognize that in this. 
so let me just des describe the the uh, methods. And um, I, I don't see Katie coming on yet, but I'd like to uh, pull her in at some point too uh, when she's on because uh, she's a simulationist as well as Michael. So this was last time they did a study, they used their own um uh, they used fifth-year medical students and uh, mixed in the anesthesia and uh, EM residents, and they were only at the uh, Lithuania University of Health Sciences. This time, they actually had an American uh, university involved as well. So there were two sites for this study, the Lithuanian University of Health Sciences and Pennsylvania State University. So I'm assuming now we have these hybrid labs around the U.S. I'm, I'm pretty sure they've uh, they're around at some of the major universities um, and and operating in medical schools. The study was at those two sites. It was run uh, not at the greatest time, but um, maybe at a, at a good time, January to June 2020, over that six month period, um, and then fifth year medical students and first year EM and uh, critical care residents again were utilized um, on an anesthesia. Uh, the, the EM and and uh, critical care residents were on an anesthesia rotation. So, and then fifth year medical students. This was a prospective cohort study. There were 110 initially included. And in the end, 92 were used for end analysis. There were 18 that did not complete the training. So the training consisted of the hybrid lab methodology, which included an online kind of cognitive component. It was virtual learning at the student's pace. Uh, on And the virtual learning, you know, involved uh, all different types of interactive uh, assignment. So it wasn't just, you know, we, we can talk about virtual learning too. Um, it, it wasn't, it sounded like that from their description, this wasn't listen to someone drone on for an hour to a bunch of word slides either. So I think that was highly interactive. There were different elements um, of interactivity that were going on on the uh, virtual learning platform. And then that was followed up by an online 10 item test. So they had to pass the 10 item test. Um, so it was mastery learning, um, meaning that you have to get 100% on it until uh, before you could enter the next phase, because the next phase would be self-organization of groups of three that rotated roles. So three uh, of the students at the same education level, which was really important as well, would uh, identify roles, leader, assistant, and assessor of skills. And then they would rotate through those roles. So that's not uncommon. I mean, um, Michael, we've talked about this too. Dave, um, for as long as I can remember when he used to teach the um, a lot of the, you know, how to teach large groups of students and, and how to teach lab uh, and simulation, we would talk about rotating roles, even rotating roles for small groups in simulation. So I think that's pretty much a common practice. I would think so. And even outside of initial education, I mean, ACLS and PALS both do this during uh, mega code testing. Someone's the medication person, someone's the team leader, someone's the monitor person. Everybody has a responsibility for their job and has a responsibility for the patient. So I I'm thinking through whether they're, you know, these are medical students. So they're, they should be familiar with this concept where they're assigned a task and they're expected to do it. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I would think so. I would think that this would match with what they're doing as well. Yeah. I think the technology probably is the most updated part. And this is, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Bill Toon is with us and he's been an educator for a very long time in EMS and probably can remember when things started to shift in the technology um, when we went from just running, you know, some scenarios uh, with ideas in our heads and that's it. And, and now uh, a, a lot of this sort of integrated virtual uh, virtual reality is is here with us how to use it i think is where people are lost but um i don't know bill can you uh, comment on that do you remember sort of the turning point in education when when virtual <laughs> gee Call they're like calling me oh are you worried that i'm senile or something <laughs> just calling on our elders here <laughs> no very very clearly, um, there was the shift that began to take place, particularly, I think, as manufacturers started developing mannequins that could be more integrated 
than the just the simple task mannequins. And I mean, mm-hmm. when I started, there was you had a, a head, there was an adult and pediatric version of the head, and there was uh, the recessi antibody, and that was it. Yeah. And then, you know, and then it grew over time. And then, of course, as that grew, they also tried to c- promote the concept of what what it was to use simulation. And, and then it led to some of these very sophisticated mannequins coming out, which people misinterpret uh, simulation to be that it has to be a high tech mannequin. Yeah. And I still think that exists, that people feel that it has to be a high tech mannequin to be a, uh, a simulation. But definitely from we did go from going off of, you know, oh, this is a call I ran once here. And you'd think about it off the top of your head and you remember what you did and and you would hope that they would do something similar. And if they didn't, you sort of browbeat them about it. And and it didn't have a lot of consistency across instructors or across participants. So it definitely had its downsides. There's no question about it. And so we've come a long way since then, but I still think that we have a ways to go. Well, even in procedural skills training, too, if you've ever done a a, a skills class and they begin it with, okay, we're going to give everybody a skills sheet and we're going to watch this person do a skill. And then they highlight the inner rater reliability issues that come from even a group of educators, um, you know, watching a student do a skill. So and that's just a procedural skill like this. This is what we're looking at is is a procedural skill, not even an integrated it's in the life of a scenario, which I appreciate, but it's still there's judging the performance of a procedural skill. Mike, did you have something to add? No, sorry. I just entered my camera off. Oh, good. Now I, I wanted to ask you, uh, bring you in and ask you about the technology in a second, because you mentioned something that you did and I wanted you to bring it up because um, I don't know if everybody's familiar with it. Bill, you had some. Yeah. you Procedural skill is an important, There, there is still a need for individuals to have competency in a procedural skill. Yes. And sometimes it's important to teach that skill in isolation, you know, and then there's got to be a logical time that you begin to integrate it into the whole picture of things. But even within medicine, there's, they're pretty strict about certain things, subclavian lines, you know, for example, you know, to, to make sure. So there is still some, procedural stuff that people have to have competency in. And I think you need to have those if you want the scenarios to really go well and stuff. Yeah. So there is a role for them, but it's a question of when you go from a procedural skill and begin to integrate it into the the rest of the practice. And when do you need to go back to that procedural skill, right? Because it's not just we go forward and then we abandon it. I think we have to always kind of return, especially if it's a high stakes or complex skill, uh, return to that, the micro, the macro. That's so important, Megan. Um, I feel like sometimes we have these arguments where a skill sheet is sort of like a bad word in education right now. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I don't know. I'm sure it's possible to do, but for putting an oxygen tank together for an initial education student, I don't know that we need a simulation for that. I think they just need to learn just like to tie their shoes. Here's how you put the oxygen tank together. I also think sometimes assessments are another thing where there is a level zero where you have mm-hmm. to get them to the place where they can walk into a room and reasonably work through. You can't just throw them into a room and be like, go ahead and do an assessment. Um, there yeah. is a point where you have to get these procedures down so that you can run a simulation like this. And I, the study noted this too, that I thought was interesting. They said they encouraged people to practice until they felt like they were at a hundred percent. They felt like they could pass the skill sheet. And I think there's something there when we talk about student efficacy and learning, um, we have a highly motivated group of students here. So mm-hmm. they did actively work to get themselves towards that proficient level. Yeah, that's a great point. So many things you said in there is, uh, are great points. Um, let me just continue with this and we'll, we can add to that because I think you've said some things that come later as well. So uh, what they they finished the online learning, they did the master the, the online test, and then they got three hours. This is the, high, the three hours total for the uh, training uh, hybrid lab, which integrates uh, software, interactive 
interactive algorithms. This is the stuff I'd really love to see. You know, we saw the picture of the hybrid lab, but I'd love to know what is the software that they had on their iPads um, or their tablets, the interactive algorithms that they're using. And the, the word interactive is the one that strikes me. How is it interactive? Um, they do have an, an images of an algorithm that's in the article, but you would never be able to read it on the screen. Um, we tried to put it up in the last one, but it's it's uh, it, it was it's very hard to see unless you pull the article. So yank that article. Uh, e scenarios, videos, checklists, and feedback. So they got feedback in this in the uh, hybrid lab itself. Um, and and they have this learning algorithm that they're using. The checklist that they use, is going to be the same one that they're going to be evaluated on. So that's not surprising, but they're doing it in the context of learning scenarios. So the four learning scenarios um, they perform, and then there's one evaluation scenario. So they have a chance to do four learning scenarios. And I'm, I think it's for each student because they're rotating through, uh, and then one evaluation scenario per student. All of it was recorded. So the entire hybrid lab experience is recorded, not just the evaluation scenario. The teacher does a video review of the evaluation scenario and the students do the reviews inside of the hybrid lab. So the, the teacher is looking at a video. Um, so this should tell you that the, the hybrid lab has multiple video angles and is and the teacher is able to actually um, you know, hear and, and see and get the feedback uh, or, or give the feedback. The feedback that they gave though, because it was rec a recording in this one was email. So it said email feedback, which I thought was interesting too. It's like, oh, I'm going to get emailed and, and be told about my feedback. I, I don't know if the students get to, you know, see their video afterwards because they really didn't look at that. They were just really looking at the um iterator reliability between the evaluation by the teachers and the evaluation by the peers uh, using that same 16 item checklist that you'll see in just a second. So that's what the, the study actually did. Again, they I, I um, outlined the participants. We had 92 participants. Here's the, the breakdown of them. The demographic data, um, the demographic characteristics that they included were the age uh, the sex um, and the level of education and the country of origin, whether it was a Lithuanian University of Health Science or Pennsylvania State uh, University. And so you can see the breakdown here um, of describing uh, the demographics. Students were at the same educational level when they were pair, um, put into their, or when they self-organized, uh, which I wonder how they did that too. They self-organized into the groups of three. Um, any, there are certain words that are used in here. I'm thinking, how did they actually accomplish that? Uh, so here is the 16 item checklist. And this is the same one that was used in their first study uh, or one of the other studies that we reviewed here. And they've had a several uh, um, studies related to this type of teaching technique. So this is the assessment of the completion of these 16 steps, comparing the student evaluation on the left here with the instructor evaluation. And I don't know if you guys remember that study that in March of 2022, when we looked at this one, um, and we were just stunned at the results when you saw the comparison of, you know, the traditional teaching of the skill versus the hybrid lab teaching of the skill and these 16 items, but there were a few areas and one was pre-oxygenation. Um, so I think, I do think it's interesting that pre-oxygenating correctly isn't perfect here. And they do mention what they would like this to be hundred percent across the board, but um, of the scores that one in both, you know, the evaluations is the lowest. So I don't know what that means, but I um that that one struck me as what why what is you know going wrong with pre-oxygenating correctly? That's a pretty important thing before because we know peri-intubation hypoxia is associated with poor outcomes. So I, I think that's an uh, that kind of struck me as wow, we would really kind of like that one to be a hundred percent. So we see uh, everything from checking the equipment to connecting the monitor, pre-oxygenating, positioning the patient using correct uh, technique and laryngoscopy and they're uh, describing the, um, the landmarks, landmark recognition, the actions um, and insertion of the tube, the depth, the cup, uh, cuff uh, inflation and um, 
all the checking and auscultating, securing, and and then checking the cuff pressure is part of the is the last step in here. So there, uh, these are all of the the steps that they use, and they compare the two. And you can see the student just by eyeballing it. The student evaluation and the instructor evaluation are are pretty um, spot on, or in agreement with one another. Just looking at the raw data. Do you guys have any any like surprises or comments about uh, this table? I wish I had known a little bit more yeah, about Alex. what their definition of success was for some of these, mm -hmm. right? So like my my overall interaction, overall reaction is like we did a really nice job of getting people to pull out the checklist and land the plane, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, but like, you know, the, the a, 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 a couple of these that are kind of throwaways, like assessing ET cuff pressure, like yeah. what what's the takeaway for the student versus pre-oxygenating, right? So what is the actual definition? And and did they kind of come up with these common definitions because we're looking at two different groups that have two different kind of standards for practice, right? Um, that was kind of my thought. Overall, I think it's good. Somebody said something in the chat. So I'll pause for a second and see what that was. Yeah. Um Michael, I wonder if you can uh, come on and just describe, well, and, and actually just to, to make a comment about what you were saying, Alex, I think one of the things is we didn't, um, the, they all got kind of zeroed by doing the virtual training first, the, the online cognitive training first. So even if their emphasis was emergency medicine or if they weren't anesthesia, they were in critical care, they were still all zeroed during that cognitive phase. And then they took the 10 item exam and then they practiced with this checklist. So, yeah, but I, but I, I, I would agree with you. Um, Michael, I'm wondering if you can just describe to me, cause I know you've got a, you've, going to have to leave early here, but if you can describe to us the, the training that you were talking about before we came on, um, and that, that interactivity, um, I just wanted absolutely. to, yeah. I think Kevin's comment in the chat about some of these are sort of subjective. That's what I thought about the pre-oxygenation correctly. Um, are the evaluators just a little bit more strict on their BVM technique and their ability to like accurately ventilate the mannequin at the time? Um, that's that is something I think can come true. Some of these pretty objective, right? They they you secured the ET tube. We checked that with waveform kinetography. There's a gold standard there. Um, I actually had a great opportunity in our sim lab the other day. They were just practicing some new technology and they had their Oculus glasses and you can run an ACLS mega code with the glasses and it's all AI voice driven. So it sets you up and you have a patient on a gurney and it's of course it's like virtual, they look virtual, but then you have your team and they each have their like little name above their head. Um, and so you have to give them direction. And it was really, I, I, my, my standards for that were a little bit, I was like, ah, eh, I'm not going to be very impressed with this, but I'll give it a shot and see how it goes. Um, and I was actually very impressed. Um, you actually gave commands. The monitor was running above the room. So you could actually see the patient's rhythm. You had to correctly identify it. And again, it used voice technology to, so if I said, you know, that's ventricular fibrillation, it would call you out. If you said things like that's VTAC, or if you said shock, cause it mm -hmm. didn't, it, specifically wants you to say defibrillation cardioversion it wants you to say ventricular fibrillation um i i kept saying it's a it's a type 2 block and it was like no it wants you to say it's a winky block or it wants you to mm -hmm. see it's a mobus and i was like ah um so my frustration was there but i was actually it was a great it was a very unique experience because you could actually see in real time when the person doing chest compressions rate slowed down and you're supposed to intuitively catch that without being prompted, which I think is incredibly true in a real mega code. Like you don't just catch it when it's like, do you see something wrong with my chest compressions? Mm -hmm. Like, well, then I'm going to pay attention to it. Um, but as a team leader, I'm expected to be doing that in the background at all times. So it really did force you to really pay attention to everybody's roles. You It enforced good team dynamics because if you just said to do something, it would say, please direct your comments to the specific team member using their name. Um, and I was yeah. like, ooh, this is going to catch some folks who just give orders and don't ever get the clear um, feedback, the the closed loop. So uh, yeah. it was a really experience and I was really happy with the, I was more impressed than I thought I was going to be. Yeah. And to the, the reason I raised this too, is that to, to the points that you and Bill were making earlier, this is, we're, we're really emphasizing the team and communication, which I think is, is really important because we know that there are studies that say that, you know, poor teamwork 
equals poor outcomes sometimes for patients. So, um, but we also can't abandon the procedural skill part of it. So now I'm wondering if, um, you know, are we going to get to a point where we can have haptic feedback for some of these things? So going back to what Alex was saying is, well, I'd like to know some of these are kind of open to interpretation. What does this mean? What, what I see is so the students and instructors are interpreting pre-oxygenates correctly the same. I don't know how they're interpreting it, but they're interpreting it the same, whatever that means, because we're seeing both of those scores as slightly low. So um, whatever training they went through to, de to determine that pre-oxygenation correctly, you know, uh, what definition that is, was, was the same is what that says to me. So what, what does that mean now that we're doing these virtual simulations that, that are emphasizing, uh, you know, team dynamics and decision-making and, and communication? Um, what does that mean for also procedural skills competency? I think that's really true, Megan. And I would be more worried about the, I mean, the study is testing integrated reliability in essence. I would be more concerned with that if these numbers were so, if they were more different, right? Yeah. An 89% to a 91% tells me, especially with almost a hundred patients or hundred students that they were simulations, they were likely pretty close in their definitions. Mm -hmm. If we were in the sixties and the forties or the sixties and the hundred and a hundred percent, then I'd be like, mm, I think there's some integrated reliability issues here or, or the objectiveness of the test may be outlandish. Um, with these numbers being as close as they are, even at 89% is the lowest one. It seems to me like your points well, is very true. Like they knew what they were looking for in this assessment. Their, their training into this was pretty accurate and their definitions must have been pretty clear. Yeah. So let me just forward here. There's a, there's a couple charts in here and I'm not, maybe Bill or somebody else can help me with some of the, the um, statistical tests uh, that are performed here. But these are all tests. Again, what they're looking for is inter-rater reliability. They grouped the distribution of scores as well. Um, so the median score is 100%. So it looks like they, you know, they weren't comparing comparing techniques like they were in the other uh, other uh, study. They were comparing scoring. Um, I wonder, you know, if you did it in the last study, uh, how how different they would be if you looked at comparing scoring in the traditional teaching model versus the scoring in a, a hybrid lab. What that would be, but I think they were already sold on the hybrid lab tech uh, technique of teaching that they, you know, just said, forget it. We're just going to keep going with this. Um, and then looked at inter-rater reliability between student and teacher assessments. So uh, again, looking at the scores, it didn't, there wasn't a significant difference um, despite wherever this, the student scored, uh, you didn't see a, a significant uh, difference except in that mid-range. And, and that wasn't st uh, statistically significant in those mid-range scores where the uh, teachers' assessments were slightly lower than um, the students. So uh, not much different here. And then this is something called a Bland-Altman analysis and then to test for agreement between students and teachers' assessments. And I'm not great at reading um, this type of, uh, of chart. So I don't know if um, any of our panelists, uh, Alex? Yeah, so great test. Bland-Altman analysis is a great test. The, wh whoever, like the, the authors had a really great statistician here, and I'll talk about some of the other tests here in a minute as an applied great. math guy myself. But um, this is this is a throwaway chart, right? So this is trying to tell you the, the general difference. But remember, there's 93 data points and there's about 10 dots here. And so um, it's a really terrific analysis to say, hey, are we on the right track? This is something you should do, especially it, if you're going to do a Spearman's coefficient, which is what they ultimately did to prove their hypothesis. Uh, but yeah, the, this chart is, is challenging. Yeah. So tell us what, can you tell us what we're looking at if we open up this chart and we say, what are we looking at? What are these dots? Yeah. So these are the, 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 x-axis the the long axis is the the mean score between the groups and then the the um, the y-axis the tall axis is the difference in mean score difference. between the groups right okay so yeah it, what they did is they they brought these down into groups and so many students had a hundred percent right you can see that here this bottom right dot um, yeah. where the difference is zero really right so, so the idea mm -hmm. is just are they high or are they low and you can see here that in general when they're off they're off high that's mm -hmm. what I was trying to tell you Okay. Gee, I'm so Katie. glad a smart I'm so glad a smart man came on to explain that because I'm pretty dumb. 
<laughs> I looked at that chart for a long, long time and looked it up and, and said, okay, it's good. We got Alex coming. <laughs> um, so then this one is the two comparing the two different uh, sites. So I want to know what you guys thought. And Katie's here. Katie O'Connor's here. Thanks, Katie, for coming on. Um, and, and we've Hi. been talking... Hi, we've been talking about scenario-based versus, uh, you know, um, rote skills, training all kinds of, of different uh, nuances here. And right now we're looking at the uh, the two sites. So we had the Lithuanian University Health Sciences and um, the Pennsylvania State University cohort. Difference in size here. So we had an N of 60 on the Lithuanian students and 32, about half the amount over on the... Um, uh, American students. So I'm not sure how that affects, you know, the analysis. And we have, a, um, you know, half the amount of students here in the um, Pennsylvania group. But the uh, scoring, you can see that the scoring is uh, lower in the uh, American students. And they uh, actually, they don't attribute it, but they suggest in their discussion that it, possibly it's uh, just not used to the hybrid lab um, methodology. Uh, and again, it's not, if you look at the hybrid lab, it's not just, you know, here you go, you can go check in, use your key card and, and have at it. Uh, there's actually a, quite a bit of structure to it. And I think that's really important to take away if you're looking at something like this, um, it is that there's more structure to it than it appears. It appears like, okay, this is self-regulated learning. This is highly motivated students. We put them in, or they self select into groups of three and find the time that works for them. And they get into this lab through key card whenever they want and have at it. But when they get in there, there's actually some structure to it. So I think that's important to remember. Yeah, so Megan, that was something that like really struck with me because I've used some of the materials or like adapted some of the materials that they've used in these two studies we've talked about. The amount of work that it takes to set this up, I think, is something that we should really be seeing. That it, you can do it. It's really successful. But gosh, there is a ton of pre-work that the instructors did to get the students to the point where they could be successful like this. So it's not that just like students can learn from each other. They can. But the instructor preparation is so important. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Because that is an area, you know, they do this kind of overall description. And since you've done some adaptations, did you pull some of their previous publications or some of their work that they published on the procedure? Yeah, because I was looking at, you know, I'm a big person looking at how we teach psychomotor skills using evaluation mm -hmm. tools versus using learning tools. Yeah. And I think sometimes what we do is we take an evaluation tool, like a checklist or a check sheet. And um, we give that to students. We're like, hey, learn this procedural skill using this check sheet with your partner next door. And I mean, just thinking of one we were using in my classroom, I, because I didn't have enough time to prepare or enough help preparing, um, we were doing OB. And one of the, the check uh, sheets has like suction mouth and nose. And the students were like, well, wait, we don't need to do that anymore. I was like, well, you do if the scenario, you know, is that you should do that. But the evaluation sheets design one for every scenario, and it's just a statement, not a like decision point. And some of yes. the tools that they were using in this hybrid lab turned those what we would think of as evaluative check sheets into learning tools where it's a flow chart with the identification of a decision point. And I think that when we're teaching or when students are learning psychomotor skills, identifying that some things are decision points. They're not just always do this in this particular order, but it's more of a, if this, then this, mm -hmm. which it's hard to do on a two dimensional piece of paper. Right. So, um, that's one of the things that it, you really have to think through when you develop it. And it's way harder to create a teaching tool or learning tool than it is to create an evaluative check sheet. There's also probably multiple correct answers or multiple ways of doing things um, in, in a correct way, then, then maybe there would be in a very isolated procedural skill. So, uh, but I, I love what you're saying about, and I, we mentioned it at the beginning, this word learning algorithm. So they talk about having learning algorithms inside of that, that, uh, that hybrid lab, they have not just evaluation tools. The evaluation tool is kind of the, the thing they used for the research. 
Um, but so because they needed something to measure, right? So they used that 16 item evaluation tool, but they talked about learning algorithms, that that's what they had inside of this, this hybrid lab, um, software, interactive algorithms, e-scenarios, videos, and checklists with feedback and, a, and learning algorithms. And I think that's that one, that big color algorithm um, that, that it's sort of like you were saying, it's kind of an, if you encounter this, then uh, these are the best practices. So yeah, I think it, that's probably the danger point, right? Of applying this uh, in in EMS. So I do want to ask you guys what you think about, you know, if we now go to applying something like this in EMS. So what was your experience, Katie? And, and where, what would you suggest if, if someone wanted to start from ground zero and say, I'd like to try some of this? Yeah, I, I hit a lot of pushback from both the learners and from other faculty. So one, it was like really hard to just get people like on consensus of how you should do an airway. And I think that there's <laughs> there's um agreement in the field that there's lots of right ways to do them. But when people are learning, sometimes they just want like a right way that, yeah. I mean, our field, it, it just doesn't translate, right? Everything we do, we're like, oh, this is the way you do it. And it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, but no, none of the patients have read the book. None of the patients understand to show up the way they're supposed to show up, right? Like they're in all different chapters. Like, you know, it's problematic. Um, yeah. So, but, you know, I teach at the advanced level and I know like Michael teaches at the EMT level. And I think part of this problem is our field has this arbitrary split where we teach EMTs as technicians and then we teach paramedics as clinicians and we kind of pretend like that's not problematic yeah. where you go through EMT school we're like, this is the way you must never let go of the C-spine or you fail, you know? Um, and then we get to paramedic and we're like, why are you holding someone's head when they're bleeding to death? What are you thinking? Why? What's the logic? Mm -hmm. And they're like, but, but I, I'm scarred. I'm scarred. I, if I let go of their head, they were going to die, you know? And it's like, it's, we do this weird thing in the way that we train. And um, I think that when we're trying to do models like this, where it's a lot of individual critical thinking that the early training model of no critical thinking, just do what I tell you, it creates problems. It, it also seems like we're kind of backwards mapping this type of teaching because national registry is shifting and this has kind of been the pattern I've seen over the time. I'd like to hear what Bill and Alex have to say about this too, but the pattern seems to be when national registry is changing the way they're going to verify competency, um, then that comes backwards into the programs, at least at the paramedic level, I've noticed that. And now we're starting to see it at both advanced uh, EMT and paramedic level where um, the, the uh, ALS redesign project is really emphasizing these higher level, um, for for lack of a better term, that's sort of a funny way of putting it, but more critical thinking through a scenario, more decision points um, than it is, you know, pick one of the following. Is it C-spine or airway? You know, it's it, less of that and more of like in the context of a scenario, which of these multiple possibilities are the most important or or most critical in this situation. And I think that when they went to the psychomotor um, portfolio in whatever year that was, 2015, and then after that, the, and the integrated out of hospital scenario, we started to see programs, you know, using more simulation than their simulation, um, you know, minimums in the student minimum competency if for accredited programs. So you see this all kind of flowing from the national registry you know, back into the programs. So I'm wondering if now we're going to see this with the change in the test, the sunset of the traditional psychomotor exam, and now moving to the cognitive exam that is has those kind of cl clinical decision points in it. How will that affect the way people teach in their programs? So I'm wondering your thoughts on that, panelists. Uh-oh. Bill's got his head in his hands. <laughs> oh, you're killing me. Why am I killing you? Because that's not the way we're supposed to educate. We're supposed to educate oh, yeah. the people to be Forward. prepared practitioners in the field, not to pass an examination. They shouldn't leave your course 
they shouldn't be authorized to test unless they are have met all of the competencies expected of them within your program. And the most important competency is, is they're not going to kill anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, the registry exam is not meant to tell someone is, is a, a, an exceptional student or a really bad student. It's, to, it's there to have they met, you know, are the minimally acceptable knowledge level they should have. We want to be training people way, way beyond that and stuff. And I was fortunate enough when I was actively educating, I educated for the people to take care of sick people. And if you do that really well, the registry exam is a cakewalk. There's nothing to it. It's simple. And if you're an educator and you haven't taken the written exam, you're doing yourself and the students a great injustice so you can understand what these changes are like and how mm-hmm. what the timing is like how it goes down and be familiar with it and then go f- and then you'll you'll feel a sense of relief and you'll go forward and say okay i need to teach these people to take care of sick people you know i'm sorry i i really anytime i hear anything well when the registry changes we just conform to that forget no no I'm talking about the pattern of how it is, not how it should be, right? Yeah, I know, but it doesn't make me happy. Uh I want to push back though. I think that the registry and that, like, I love what you're saying. Like, and I've heard Bill say it a bunch of times that Uh if you just train people to be good paramedics, they will pass registry. And yes, but there's like an asterisk, right? Because there's still stuff that the registry has not gotten on pace with and i will say coa is even like four steps behind that for example we know statistically that if you're doing a gcs you should be using a job aid because without a job aid people are incorrect yet yeah. we do not test using a job aid so yeah. if i'm training someone in the classroom i should never be having them calculate a gcs or without that reference sheet but they're yeah. not allowed to use it on the test so this well, is I, this is where we have that, that problem is- that is changing, though. I know that that is changing on the registry, and they are trying to find out what is the right amount of job access stuff that they should have to to still be able to determine competency. But you're absolutely correct. In yeah. my program, or particularly when we got working in the field, you know, when we, I was doing continuing education all the time, we said, stop trying to do it on top of your head. We have calculators in the drug box. We have these sheets you're supposed to use. Stop. And you have a partner that you need to double check with as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree that that's the whole safety too, the culture of safety that I think that we don't um, necessarily promote. We talk about it a lot, but do we, do we, you know, promote it? Uh, I wanted to also ask you guys about, um, the the whole question of resources, because I think they bring this up several times uh, as one of the the introducing problems, as they introduce the problem, you know, why do we even care whether or not peers and and uh, instructors agree? And they introduce the 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 problem of resources. You know, we have and not just the problem of resources, but the training of instructors. Um, so how does that fit? as well um, in, in EMS. And the, the, they talk about the traditional way of evaluating is instructor heavy, instructor and resource heavy. Uh, and we tend to look at this hybrid model and say, well, that's resource heavy. Look at all this technology that I would have to have. And, and like to your point, Katie, look how much it took to set up and to develop this model of teaching. But then what about, what, what was the back end like? Um, Katie, and what kind of promise could you see on the back end in terms of if the responsibility, if we became more facilitators of learning and the students became more responsible and self-regulating and motivated to that learning and could do these reliable peer evaluations, could you see the promise of that fitting into the argument of we don't have enough resources, we don't have enough instructors, we need all these instructors? Yeah. So when I tried to do it at Paramedic Training Institute with intubation, the uh, issue was that they're in 
person instructors were all nurses who did not have intubation as a skill set so if you think of like the people that are there every day with the students couldn't really even provide feedback from a standpoint of i've actually done this or this is how i do it for real this is it's not even in their scope they don't have training on it now they have some training on it because they work at a paramedic training institute but they're it's just not the procedure so they were only relying on physicians but the physicians still didn't have time to do the video feedback. So even mm -hmm. though we set it up and we had the equipment for somebody to watch the video, they like then they didn't have anyone to do that. So the peers, um, the students really recognized that and had no um, buy in. So they just wouldn't even do their video evaluations. So they're just like, I'm just going to wait until a physician's there. And they didn't have any um, sense of like value in their peers feedback. Mm hmm. Oh, so that's it interesting. Was, so they're like, whatever, I'm just going to wait until the doc's around and then I'll ask the doc. And hmm. there is, I think, a lack of understanding in um, the student population about how valuable peer feedback is. Yeah. And so I have students who don't want to practice with their peers. They'll be like, well, can you get an instructor to come in? Because it doesn't really count unless an instructor tells me. Yeah. So that was something I uh, found was problematic for me. Then I like the next time I tried to do this video approach with the algorithm for intubation, I took on reviewing the videos and I would take like uh, screenshots from the video and show the student where the angle of their laryngoscope blade was wrong. And then mm -hmm. they would redo the video. They would watch it back and they would check their own angle. So that to me was really great because I have 22 people. I can't do it all simultaneously, but mm -hmm. I have, you know, nights and weekends and um, probably too late with too much <laughs> to watch so many you videos of intubation right? no life so no li did yeah. you just say no yeah. life yeah uh, if eventually we got to a point where we valued um instructors in ems yes then this would be great like right like we need to give somebody the time the space and we need to adequately reimburse them to create all of these hybrid learning situations then we can all as a community use them but we need to first value that and we don't value ems training as a community right like it's the first thing that's cut from programs um you the standing joke is get pregnant or injured that's how you become an ems instructor like until mm -hmm. we value it i don't think that even trying to put these programs into place will be effective yeah and i this group this um group of educator researchers. Um, I think it's an example of how another thing that educators, those who are out there and who are educators of EMS, um, becoming an educator researcher, I think is going to be an important piece to that, uh, to, to be able to, to do things, even if it's not as, as developed as something like this, but collaborative groups of educator researchers to bring these bring results forward and present them at conferences or publish them and, um, you know, build the, not just the profession of, you know, we're always talking about the profession of EMS, but what about the profession of uh, EMS educators? So I think, I think that's um, a point as well. <laughs> Are you agreeing, Bill? Well, have you ever thought about it? And I've shared this before, you know, I hold you know, I have a professional degree, if you want to call it. I've, you know, a doctor of education. I have teaching credentials in EMS from all of these different states. But, you know, I'm not qualified to teach kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Pretty sad, huh? Yeah. I can teach someone how to do front of neck access, but I'm not considered, you know, qual because they've developed, you know, within education, formal education, particularly at the K through 12, they really whether it's good or bad, they've done a wonderful job of developing the education profession there. We don't have an equivalency to that. And please do not misinterpret me, N-A-E-M-S-E. I love all of the programs you have, mm -hmm. but they don't make someone competent. You know, there's not enough time. There, it, it's not really, we're not develop, devoting the amount of time to it. So I agree with you. But I want to go back to this this task here for a second and talk about something historically. You know, I, I had shared with a number of people recently that I listened to American Sirens. And of course, I went out and got a lot of uh, articles uh, that uh, were written by the original Peter uh, Saffer, Saffer and these different people that, that wrote stuff. And what's amazing is, is even then, we have problem getting 
our students into the hospital clinical experience, the operating room, they had the exact same problem 50 years ago. Yes. And he could, it was interesting, Safar, Safa, however you like to say it, he actually was would take students in and only they would only be able to intubate his students, none of his colleagues, mm-hmm. none of it, even though he was the director of anesthesiology, would allow it. It's just amazing that that problem still exists. And I still think that when you go to the operating room, uh, doing direct laryngoscopy is just one small component of the learning that needs to take place there in the operating room. That's really yes. a small component. There's so much more that, that can take place there. But, And that's what they're talking about here. And I do love this idea, but it's labor intensive, which is fine. And uh, I appreciate the author sharing their information because there is a way to grab this stuff and bring it back if you want to try to replicate, which is really good on your part. I think, though, that it it goes back to a a theme that people are probably tired of hearing me say is that EMS education is typically done on the cheap. Yeah. And you look at any other allied health profession and the FTEs and their budgets and everything far exceed EMS, yet the EMS programs produce by far the most number of students. I think this, this study, though, is helpful that like if we invest a little bit of money and time, we can save money. And I think that's an area yes. where we really need to be better at, right? Like we don't embrace technology. We don't embrace training. We don't embra- embrace investment. And if we did, we would be able to save money later, right? Like maybe 500 man hours one year decreases 500 man hours every year for instructors. Yeah. And students embrace experience um, in the field um, over you know, the, the, uh, experience in, in the teaching setting, which is, which is an interesting, interesting take. So, um, I think we're, we're approaching the last couple of minutes. I want to know if anybody has any, uh, you know, kind of final comments here. Yeah, uh, one comment I would just make is that we also, not only do we do it on the cheap, but this is a team. If you look at this list of authors, they're a list of educator researchers um, it, that's a team. And in EMS, we're commonly one, two, three people. Um, if you're lucky, you've got two that are really invested and work together and collaborative. And if you're really, really lucky, you have more than that. But uh, programs are operating, you know, one person away from shutting down. And that's that's another thing that's really got to end um, is the the idea that you you know, that a program can be run on one or two people. Um, so any final comments about this? I thank the authors for doing this and following up on it. I always appreciate it when people are willing to uh, to stick their head out there and let us, uh, if you want to say, you know, pick at them and stuff. But I, I appreciate it. And I appreciate everyone who listens to us. And I appreciate all of you work, who are out there working in the trenches as educators because it's a it's a thankless job so many times. Thanks. Man. Yeah, same thanks. And also, um, go back and and reread the the article if you have a chance. And this is really great example of very well done statistical analysis. Um, and really important to have if you have an applied mathematician available uh, when you do your research to do it because they did a really great job. And the other nice thing about this this particular journal is that you can see the peer review comments. So you can actually go oh. through what their original revisions looked like, what a peer reviewer suggested, why they suggested it. It's a great, great uh, article for those of you that are just thinking about ramping up your research. Thank you for pointing that out. I didn't know that. So great point. Thank you, Alex. And thanks for being our mathematician. Katie? No, yeah. I just um, Also, this research group is just a great research group. So this yes. is a wonderful place where you could just take one thing and then go and look at what else they've published. So if you find an article that you like or you find really good statistics, go see what else they've done. That's how I found this one because we loved <laughs> that one so much. We're going to Lithuania, Katie. Yeah, <laughs> That'll be our next go. trip. <laughs> All right. Thank you all for joining us. Maybe let's all go to Lithuania. Uh, Join us next time on Friday, December 22nd. We will be doing the best of educational research 2023. We're doing a repeat of what we did last year. Each one of our panelists is going to pick 
their favorite article or a new article to share with us. Uh, that'll be a lot of fun. So come on by, uh, join us on uh, Friday, December 22nd, 10 a.m. Pacific noon central. And there is another PCRF Clinical Journal Club with Dr. Remley Crow, Dr. Tony Fernandez, Monday, December 11th. And to join us live each month, remember you can register at prehospitalcare.org and you can visit our archive and subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash at PCRF at UCLA. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.